so I want to thank everybody for coming. And today we have two very special guests. First, Agni Dave Prabhu here, um, who is a world-renowned musician in the Vaishnav li lineage of uh, devotional music. And uh, we have a special honorary guest, His Holiness Tripurari Swami, who is here to give us a, a wonderful uh, presentation on nature of consciousness, correct? Or I, That's okay. I don't know. That's what the, whatever the presentation will be, I'm sure it will be uh, very nice. So thank you all for coming, and thank you, Maharaj, for coming. Thank you. Om Agyanati Nirandasya Gyanam Janasalakaya Chapsur Militam Yenatasme Sri Gurave Namaha Ajunulam Bita Bhujo Kanakabodato Sankitanai Kapitaro Kamalaya Takso Vishwamboro Dvijaboro Yugodhan Mopalo Bande Jagat Priyakaro Karunabutaro Bande Shri Krishna Chaitanya Nitanando Sodito Gorodai Pushpavanto Chitro Sangotamuno Deam Sada Paribagnam Vishtadoham Tetas Padam Shibarinchi Nuktam Sharanam Brittati Ham Pranatapala Prabhupadipotam Bande Mahapurushate Charanada Bindam Egori Vashnav Guru Paramparaki Jai Guru Bhakta Bindaki Jai Thank you very much for your introduction, invitation. Pleasure to be here. Good evening, everyone. Originally, I was scheduled to speak at the university, I was told, so there was some thought of speaking about the nature of consciousness in an academic uh, climate from a devotional perspective. As it turned out, the program, as I understand it, shifted to this um, facility here, which is, from what our host has said, not exactly in an academic environment. It seems more like a spiritual environment, <laughs> which is fine. I'm comfortable there, too. <laughs> as you might imagine. Um, so, last night we spoke at a, at a yoga um, facility, the bhakti shop, and um, we spoke about mysticism and mystic poetry, actually, in the nature of an enlightenment. So, what will we speak about tonight, then, given that history, brief history? It, I, I thought, upon coming in, to, to maybe blend, blend the two a little bit, and by way of speaking from Shikshastakam. Shikshastakam is a beautiful um, compilation of verses. Shiksha means instruction, and Astakam means eight, so eight, eight, uh, eight instructions. And um, they were penned about 500 years ago in, um, in Sanskrit. 
by Sri Chaitanya. And about a oh, hundred years after that, one of his uh, followers in the succession took those verses and organized them in a, as if they were written in one, as one poem, something like that, and um, showed a somewhat of a progression from one to the next that that he called then Shikshastaka. This is Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami, author of a number of books himself, and uh, he included that at the compilation of these eight verses, poems, in his book, Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita. So we've written a small uh, commentary on that, Shikshastakam, and uh, rendered the text uh, poetically into English. So let me read from one of the, one of the poems, one of the verses of Shikshastakam, and I'll try to plumb the depths of it and see where, see if we can swim there. <laughs> he says, Nadanam Nadjanam Nasundarim Kavitamba Jagadisha Kamaye Mama Janmane Janmanishwari Babatad Bhakti Rahituki Tui O Lord of the universe, I do not want wealth, followers, beautiful women, wisdom or verse. I ask only for unalloyed bhakti unto you, O Praneshwar, birth after birth. I think some of you may be familiar with this Shikshastakam. You look like it. Some of them maybe not. Um, So that's a challenge to talk about it in such a way that uh, those who are unfamiliar and thereby and to that extent perhaps unfamiliar with the particular tradition that, uh, that we represent talk about it in a way that uh, those who are unfamiliar can benefit something, and those who are familiar, you know, too high for some, too low for others, what, what to do. I'll try my best at any rate, and give some opportunity for anyone to ask uh, questions. With regard to our lineage and the lineage of Sri Chaitanya, I think to put it in a, in a category that um, those unfamiliar with the tradition might be better able to relate to it uh, we could say that we are perennialists, perennialists rather than pre-moderns, but pre- means to leave out many things from the pre-modern, but to take the essence of it. And that means, a perennialist means with some uh, caution about modernism and some suspicion, some doubt about postmodernism also. So, within the context of, uh, of being a, a perennialist sect, then, there are a number of them. And to go to Vaishnavism could be considered as such. In fact, the great uh, Thakur Bhakti Vinod, uh, who's a, a significant person in our lineage, appearing in the world about, oh, the uh, uh, mid-18, early 1900s, sought to um, interface this tradition with, with the modern world, with the British in, in India and so forth. And he wrote, of course, bond with Emerson and Thoreau, who would be considered traditionalists or perennialists as well. And, um, and so a particular tradition within uh, perennialism, which is basically 
the idea that, um, that throughout human history and in all uh, segments of human society, from the less civilized to the more civilized, there is an intuitive sense that is predominant within um, human society. It is not psychological, but it relates to the, the, the ontological uh, reality of the self, of consciousness, that is budding or developing, or flowering in human consciousness, more so or to a greater extent than it is in less complex forms of life. There's a difference between consciousness in terms of perceiving and consciousness in terms of self-perception. In other words, less complex forms of life certainly perceive pain and, and happiness and, and, uh, and whatnot, sensations and so forth. But the degree to which they have a sense of self and the fact that they exist, that is uh, in the least much um, uh, less so than we in human dress. So it's a good time to be living, I mean, in human form, human time. We're in human time right now, all of us here. And it's a good time. Uh, it's a good opportunity. It's an opportunity to be aware that we exist. That's pretty interesting. We are not, for the most part, aware of the extent to which we exist. And so, like other less complex forms of life, we move with some trepidation. There is some fear that pervades our uh, existence. So the task is to grow, in a sense, from the self-awareness that we have to realize from the fact that we, we know intellectually that we exist, to know actually that we exist, uh, to, to, or to know the extent to which we exist, that our existence is not threatened as it appears to be. In this world, we're kind of living with uh, that uh, kind of overarching uh, fear that we might not and at any time. So there's, there's um, to, to progress, I want to say, and in a qualitative sense, then, is to move in this direction and to come to some type of knowing um, beyond thinking. It's not that because we have a mind and we think that we can know. The mind gets in the way of knowing. It's not that because we have eyes we can see or ears that we can hear, but these things are getting in the way of taking advantage of all there is to hear. Can you do justice to all of the forms and all of the beauty with two eyes or all of the sounds with two ears? This is a maddening kind of predicament we find ourselves in. We are the seer, the hearer, the feeler, the experiencer, the knower, and the vehicle, as much as it is facilitating this hearing and seeing and, and thinking, as I'm saying, which is a step above some of the less complex forms of life, thinking, intellectualizing, there's that, that freedom is there with us. Nonetheless, 
as much as the, the, the form is affording us some freedom of expression and experience, it's limiting us as well. So to improve the quality of our life means to take steps such that we become, first of all, aware, as I say, of the extent to which we exist. We have a kind of a free existence compared to, let's say, plant life or animal life. We can move around and interact socially and think, and we can even think that we think poorly, that uh, we're free to do that also, that we're that there's nothing more than physical, than the brain is possible. We can, such allowance, such freedom is there, like enough rope to hang yourself is afforded in human life. We're, we're kind of coming out of a, a more constricted, this is the idea, of course, in pernialism, and true to our tradition as well, we're coming out from the const- more constricted um, conditions of, of life, um, lesser developed forms of life, where there's less freedom, we have the freedom, for example, to say, you first, excuse me. We have that freedom, don't we? Now, if you just take some food and put it down among some hungry dogs, the hell, too many of them won't say, you, you go ahead first, excuse me. Don't you? So they're more uh, pressed, if you will, by the condition they find themselves in, by the demands of the, uh, of, of the senses. And as much as we as human beings are answering uh, to the call of the wild, if you will, the call of our senses in relation to sense objects, then to that extent, the, that other faculty, the thinking faculty, the intellectual faculty, uh, is not um, manifest. It's suppressed. It shouldn't be, for that matter, wedded to the senses and their, their habit for taking. Do you understand? The senses are reaching out to take from the world through the senses. Identified with them, we feel a little empty. We've identified with an, with an empty bag, so to speak. And uh, so we reach out to take, to, to be fulfilled. And, um, and to that extent, I think, the thinking faculty then becomes pushed to the background. Or if it's, it shouldn't be wedded to that pursuit, intelligence, for example, if it is wedded to the pursuit merely of um, sensual indulgence, then well, we were going to go to the zoo the other day, but I, we didn't make it. We ended up going to the, to the Japanese gardens instead. Nice experience. But... but um, some wild beasts there, but the point. But uh, if we, with intelligence, then allow our intelligence only to facilitate and find ways and means to pursue the call of our senses, well, there should be a big cage for such people also. (laughs) Very dangerous species, more dangerous than the wild uh, beast. So... That would be a great loss and a corruption uh, of, of the intellectual uh, faculty just to take us in the direction of the wild, if you will, when it distinguishes us from the wild. 
You follow? We were said to be a rational animal. So the wonderful news is that we can be an animal, we could be a rational animal, or we could be rational, or we could be we could be transrational. You have to become rational to become transrational, to go beyond the limits of reasoning. And this is this is a wonderful, like I say, time to be living human life. This is an opportunity that the perennialists feel uh, we are afforded, and it's a feeling that is in the majority of all human beings, and only the misuse of intellect and reasoning really causes one to think otherwise and and conclude to uh, arrive at a very counterintuitive notion as to the purpose of human life and the opportunity that it affords us. It's true that some things that are intuitive may not be correct. You may have an intuition about something and you may find yourself to be incorrect. So to always follow your intuition may not always uh, be such that you uh, arrive at truth. But when there is a more uh, of, a, of, a, of a collective, intuitive sense, as I'm speaking, that it pervades an entire uh, species from the aboriginal forms to the most uh, uh, polished forms of life, that has to be given a little more weight than an individual's um, intuition about what's around the block or uh, what's going to happen next. What that intuition is, really, is this blossoming of the self, of consciousness, that the human dress affords. It affords us, as we know, the opportunity to know that we exist. Nature is waking up to the fact that it has a, has a soul in human life. No, just to live then like a, like a big, wild, intelligent beast. Uh, not, a, not very intelligent, but to use intelligence to be a big beast that doesn't seem to be a, a, a good, wise uh, use of such a faculty when it is considered to be the faculty that distinguishes us from the wild. It should be used to move away from the wild. Does that mean then to rise above nature? Yes, in a sense. Yes, to rise above nature. And it could be argued that that very intelligent people since the 17th century on have been trying to rise above nature through the wedding of... uh, Let's say Christianity and science, and then science and technology, and uh, it, it might be thought that we have risen above nature to some extent. Lives may be extended longer. Oh, we don't have to go on foot anymore. We can even fly in the air, like I did to come here, you know, from California. So we are rising above nature, but of course, this has been going on for a couple hundred years. This particular attempt to rise above nature—all it really says, in one sense, from the spiritual point of view—is that yes, human life gives us the opportunity to rise above nature, and we sense that, and so we're pursuing it. Whether the pursuit is well thought out, and we're actually accomplishing that then then has to be examined. 
the drive for that, the sense for that, the sense that such is possible, that is intuitive in human society. And so the pursuit of it. But if we were to rise above nature, there has to be not just a quantitative rise, but a qualitative rise as well. You follow me? So we don't see too much of a qualitative rise above nature. And for that matter, not much of a quantitative rise either in the last couple of hundred years in in modernity. uh, uh, In fact, good thoughtful people are are reasoning that the very attempt to rise above nature through kind of meeting nature head-on is becoming counterproductive and bringing the whole of of the human existence into into some... uh, some jeopardy. And more than that, I think, besides, that may sound like a more alarming than it is, perhaps, someone may think, although others, some do feel it is quite a predicament, but, uh, but besides that, in other words, besides the fact that, that possibly by the, the um, attempt to rise above nature through technology and science and so forth, we're making the, the earth less um, inhabitable, that may be a debate. You're probably on the same side as I am on that, but uh, fair enough to say it's, it's debatable. But what's, um, what's not debatable is that by the attempt to rise above nature through technology and t- through an attempt to control nature, this is the motive... Uh, this is the uh, this is what the scientific method, if you will, comes out of the control experiment. Comes out of a desire to control nature, and in that sense, rise above nature. From that comes, as I say, the, the, the scientific method and uh, the control experiment. From that, most kind of naturally comes a naturalist or physicalist worldview that there is no supernatural. And from that comes alienation, not happiness, not fulfillment. Humanity is off balance. Why is it off balance? Because this intuitive sense that I started speaking about within all of us, uh, that there's more to life than, uh, than what meets the eye, that, that's, than that is on the surface, that there's a magic to life and that there's a meaning to life. There's a purpose to life. That means there's something greater than me. There's a purpose that the world has inherently, that I am to meet with, to make, uh, make a union with, I am to connect with, and find my place and make my life on an individual basis meaningful. So the idea that there's something greater than us, and it's benevolent, it's kind, and by connecting with that, my life will improve qualitatively. And that I don't need anything, I don't need to add anything on in my life to achieve that. The progress that a perennialist questions that a modernist or postmodernist may want to wave before us is only a quantitative add-on type of progress, really. And... Um, what we're saying is that there can be qualitative improvement 
of human life without having to add anything on, wherever you are, in any condition of life. This is accessible to you. So there's a sense, strong sense, like intuitive sense like this in human society. So when this intuitive sense meets with a naturalist worldview that comes as a result of trying to control the world, bring it under our grip entirely for our purposeless, really, life. I mean, you, you, you deny that the world has a purpose of its own. This is, this is the conclusion of... Uh, the kind of natural inclusion, uh, conclusion of of, um, of the modern world. Therefore, existentialism and angst and there's no place. I'm, there's, I feel like I should have meaning, but I don't, according to the worldview that has come out of it. The worldview says there is no meaning. That's a little disconcerting. And then you know, someone says, well, you, know, you have a psychological need to have, have meaning. We have things, we have psychology, we have religion, you can go with that for a while. Ultimately, I'm going to do away with that, too. And, and uh, so that everyone makes, makes sense. This is a very dangerous road to go. This is a, it, human society will never successfully go down that road because the intuitive sense in human society that there is meaning will always prevail, always prevail. First a couple hundred years, it's been going in this direction, and even postmodernism is a, is a semi-revolt or a huge doubt about it. Wait a minute. Although it still in, it still carries with it much of, of modernist thinking and so forth, nonetheless it, it it raises a big doubt. So, from using our unique faculty, if you will, of of intelligence to pursue a life of moving away from the world, rather than trying to to conquer it. Uh, bring it within our grasp, grasp to take from it, rather than try to control it, to use intelligence to participate in a kind of a participatory approach, to uh, to be part of it and to find my part in it. And as an epistemology, as a means of knowing that can come from that, put some stock in, some weight in, in... Um, kind of um, intuitive uh, discernment that comes from real, um, well-thought-out, tried and and trusted um, methodology, first-person methodology. You have to experiment on yourself. (laughs) You are the experiment. This is yoga. This is meditation. It's first-person methodology for for knowing, not a third-person. And after all, we are as much as we are consciousness, and pretty much we are, uh, that is a subjective realm. So you can't deal with it, you can't know it objectively. So what is the result then? This participatory approach to life that gives rise to a method of knowing that is, uh, you know, uh, let's say intuitive discernment, kind of a mystic knowing, kind of a, a knowing that results from turning ourselves inward rather than outward, which causes that intellectual faculty that distinguishes us in one sense from the other forms of life to kind of uh, grow and to, be, and to be wedded rather than with the senses and their call and their demand with the... Um, 
spiritual uh, current to to go in that direction. There are people that talk about this. People have experience of this. There are things that have been written about this, as you all are familiar with. So to bring one's intelligence into connection with, with like revelation, Upanishad, uh, or uh, uncommon knowledge that, that itself comes from manifests out of such a methodology. And to take your intelligence and tie it to that rather than to the call of the senses and use the intelligence fortified by such on that side to tame yourself. Right? And to the extent that the self or the animal self of our, of our side of ourself is tamed, then this faculty of intellect becomes more refined and it facilitates the transcendence of its own self, transcendence of intellect. Therefore, from rational, from an animal to a rational animal to being actually rational. I mentioned this last night. Vedanta, yoga, real spiritual practice. I don't mean religion and belief, but real spiritual practice. It takes a lot of uh, courage, a lot of courage. You'd be ready for a real ride there. A lot of strength. That means a very good opportunity to build character in every way. And, um, you know, it's a long and winding road back home. So, um, with good help, good uh, encouragement, good company, and it becomes it becomes possible, it becomes happy, even in its ups and its downs. If you want to reach the highest peak of Everest, you have to go through so many foothills. So the journey to yourself, going to, will look sometimes like this, sometimes like this. Up and down. If the one is standing back, who's encouraged you to go, he can see even going down is part of going up. Like this. So good company, that is important. That is not important. That is essential and real good company. For home-going, a home-knowing person, that is required. When that person speaks, then that will hit home. That will touch home. Home is in the heart. We'll know that's true. And if you want to go home, then you have to take that truth, what you know to be truth, take that home with you. Make that part of your life. Let it go in the ear and down to the heart. That is foundation stone there to build a temple to live in. So home is in the heart. Home knowing person can touch home. They say, oh, that hit home. Something like that. This is the idea. This is essential. Good guidance. It's a difficult thing. It's a great challenge, spiritual life. It's the greatest challenge. So it's very exciting, actually. <laughs> great challenge and it requires quite a bit of um, objectivity also it's again you are on the dissecting table it's you you're on the altar you're being sacrificed your sense of self is what is to be sacrificed the conventional sense of self of being American or Indian or man or woman or black and white this is to be sacrificed to die is nothing a material death, ego death, that is another thing. <laughs> Sri Chaitanya Devi said, Oh, 
if I could have died and got praying, spiritual love, I would have died a thousand times. That is so easy. But to die to the taking that uh, material life is constituted of, that is very difficult, huh? And that's just the foundation. That's just to go in the door. So we need good help with that. That is a challenge. That is worth uh, rising to such a noble uh, pursuit. I realize we're a small group of people here identifying this kind of idea, and it's kind of out of the mainstream. That's good, to be out of the mainstream. This is really flowing in the wrong direction. If somehow you're caught by this kind of idea, this captured by this, through someone, as I always said, through one tradition or another, then bond together with such people. And in the context of that, find that particular path that is most useful to you. Take some of your own objectivity to that and choose and go with it, with good company. This is a great... Uh, challenge. So from being an animal to being a rational animal to being actually rational, I want to say to enter into spiritual practice is to become rational. A rational animal may go to work in the lab and make experiments and get data and come up with uh, theories and so forth and function in the world, but his or her actions own life is not necessarily rational. To overeat is not rational. Do you understand? We're going to very basic idea here. You ever ever have the experience of doing something that with your intelligence you know is not in your own interest? You think, am I joking or what? <laughs> <laughs> That's irrational, you see. As you can understand. That is very irrational. So to be rational, not just a rational animal, but to be purely rational. This is what to embark upon spiritual pursuit seriously under good good guidance, and to be aware of what the challenge is and what what difficulties may arise as far as one can. You know, details will will never be known until they present themselves. But in general, this is a great challenge. But this is to be reasonable, and from acting reasonably like this and consistently so. And one can transcend the limits of reason. That, that there is more than reason, that is reasonable. <laughs> that is reasonable. We, should, we don't want to lead only a reason-ruled life where we proceed with caution. There should be some caution, and we should restrict our associations to that which is fruitful and beneficial and, uh, for spiritual pursuit. Life is short. So reasoning should be employed like this. But we want to come to the homeland, as I say, of the heart, where reason is kind of re- retired. It's not unreasonable, but when you're home, then you don't have to think that much. Everything's in place. Mother says, eat this. And you say, oh, must be good for me. She loves me, so must be good for me. When out in the world, you have to read the labels very carefully. <laughs> so that you're in a foreign place, you're, you're not at home. So homeland and home of the heart, uh, this means uh, to, to move freely, even unencumbered by intellect, by the need to know. Now we have some need to know. So I speak to you all, you're rational people, and I try to arrange my feelings, my realization in a rational way through words and logical order and so forth to address you in terms of the language that you speak, reason. So you listen to me and 
you're weighing some of the thoughts and some of them you let them go in and some of them you're not sure about. And, and if I can capture your mind enough, then you stop thinking about it and everything will go in. And so much will come out of that. Well, after all, it's not me. I mean, what are we talking about? What is the subject? It's about us. What is our potential as a human being? What alliances we may make in human society than to realize our potential. So this school, school of Sri Chaitanya, we call it Gaudiya Vaishnavism, it's within perennialism. But within perennialism, it's a doctrine of love. So while all the sects, if you will, that might constitute perennialists, speak similarly as I have thus far, to one extent or another. In Gaudiya Vaishnavism, our doctrine is, is not, it excels in the transrational realm. It excels within transcendence. What I mean by that, it has, it has a twofold kind of understanding of the nature of ultimate reality that it constitutes removal of the negative and this call of the wild, as I've been talking about. But to retire that in and of itself doesn't constitute the whole of the experience of transcendence. If it did, transcendence would be still. And some people reason well like that. That If you're in negative numbers, then it's positive to come to zero. Zero has some some meaning and some value in relation to negative numbers. So we're moving in the world by the dictates of our senses and minds, very oppressive affair. And this movement is very troublesome. The nature of the movement is that it perpetuates itself because it's a movement of taking, and when you take, you owe. This is the whole karmic predicament. So I've taken, now I owe. So off to work I go. It's troublesome. So to retire from such movement, cease from moving in relation to things that don't endure in pursuit of enduring life, which is obviously a folly, this is ignorance, to cease from this is reasonable. You don't think you can do it by reason alone, but by spiritual practices that are not unreasonable, but are, I would say, somewhat uh, transrational then you can counteract this effect, right? You can become still and, and stop moving madly in relation to the, to the uh, demands of the mind and the senses. That would be peaceful. Just think, you sit here and you're listening to me and if I'm not loud enough or interesting enough or something is too much on your mind, you're going somewhere else at the same time and only, you know, that is the, that's the sin of life. That we, we live in longing for the future and lamenting the past. What is the cost? Is the present? It's a huge cost. Huge cost. Because, as I said, in human life, the present, everything can be found without adding anything on, without moving here, getting the better job, finding a new partner, getting rid of the old one, or any moving of the chairs, the furniture that uh, that you might think would improve your capacity to to be all that you can be. So in the very uh, moment of the present, paying attention there, it's all 
you know, finite, infinite, it's an angle of vision in one sense. Our task is only to change our angle of vision. Boredom is the only sin for the Vedantist, for the spirit. I mean, we, this is, morality is ultimately whatever facilitates my spiritual life, that is the moral standard. Whatever doesn't, that is immoral. It may be that leading me in an ethical, moral life in, in many re- regards facilitates my spiritual life, but to look at it dynamically, for those who are a little acquainted with this, this tradition, there's a whole idea of barn and ashram. It's an ethical, moral stance, but it's only as useful as it facilitates our, our spiritual growth. It should, but it, sometimes it may not. So to move from that, to be still, to stop moving, to come to stillness, to come from negative numbers to out of debt, out of karmic debt to zero. This is a kind of fullness of the Buddhist and the uh, Advaitin and, uh, and many other traditions. So some, some value to that. It's attractive to sit peacefully after you've been chased by yourself. You know, as <laughs> that story, a fellow robbed the bank and then ran down the street shouting, someone robbed the bank, thief, thief, thief. And, so the townspeople approached it, which way did he go? And so he went that way. And this is the mind, like this. The problem is me. <laughs> me and you, us, we have, we have our own, own problem. So to, we're being chased by ourselves, by a sense of self that we have conjured up, so to speak. A conventional sense of self, an add-on, complete add-on. A nationalist self, it's a... a Republican self, a socialist self, a democratic self, a, a woman self, a man self. It's all conventional sense of self. We may improve it, like I mentioned, like Marx unmasked our social unconscious so that we might, this was his idea, theoretically it's pretty neat, but it hasn't played out always so well But in practice, but to become socially responsible, Freud, our personal consciousness through revealing the subconscious motives and desires that cause us to do things we didn't we weren't aware of, so to become aware of it, become our whole person. This is all to improve oneself within the conventional sense of self, and that is only as useful as in doing so it fosters pursuit of the unmasking of the kind of sacred unconsciousness, which is categorically different from the conventional self on any level. Do you follow me? However good of an American you become or however good of a woman you become or a person, a human you become, it's only as good as it fosters the dismantling of the conventional sense of self that masks and covers the real self that is ontologically existing, that's real. In other words, our person as a human doesn't endure. It has no standing. Do you follow me? particular conglomeration of mind and matter that makes up our conventional sense of self, it doesn't have any real existence in as much as real things endure. It's an appearance. So as much as within the context of that conventional sense of self, we improve it to facilitate its dismantling so that the the self that actually exists in all circumstances can be known. 
That is then how to live our conventional sense of self in a way that will be fruitful. Then we will unmask not only different types of desires, but the very naked form of desire itself. And how desire is creating this sense of self. We are our desires. I mean, you know, the Marlboro man, it used to be. You know, you smoke, you were that rugged individual, you smoked Marlboros, or whatever it is, you know. This is your car, that's you. When I was a kid in the 50s, and it was, cars were the thing, not for me, but a lot of people were into that. Cars, and the car was, it still is, you know, the car is just you, it, that's you. So, you know, you're a mother because you've got a daughter, you're your wife because you've got a husband. And why have a daughter, why have a husband, or whatever may be the case, these are all desires. So we are our desires. Consciousness has the capacity to, materially speak, conventionally speaking, has the capacity to extend itself. So we extend ourselves into other things by two letters. They're very small, but the implication is huge. What are they? My, M and Y. My sense of I is determined by my sense of my. My house, my country, my family, my nation, me. (laughs) Do you understand? My sense of I is determined by my sense of my. What is the reality of that? Nothing is yours. (laughs) That's the reality. There's no my. The I that comes out of that my, that is as false as the sense of my, that things actually belong to you. You own them, they're yours. Can't keep them. But you do exist. Otherwise, how can you have a sense of my? It's coming from consciousness to unmask that. And the very color of desire, the naked form of that. The Buddha said, the world's about suffering. The cause is desire. That's pretty heavy, see? So go now. (laughs) Stop desiring. (laughs) Not so easy. That's the challenge. So we should at least have, in my opinion, a user-friendly approach to that. And this God, Sri Chaitanya, has given a very user-friendly approach to that. Bhakti. It also is such that um, it looks at the self in terms of its capacity to think in terms of my. And it reasons, well, I think that we are identified with something. We are relational in our being. We are whatever we are in relation to something. It's the only way anything can be defined anyway. So uh, this self then, this unit of consciousness that's not the conventional self, to arrive at it kind of foundationally by dismantling the conventional self is to be peaceful, to be still, right? But because it is what it is ultimately in relation to something, and it's in relation to matter, it's lost. When I, myself, a unit of consciousness, define myself in relation to matter and mind, I lose sight of myself. This other appearance comes up, this virtual reality that I get plugged into, and, and, um, and everything that I am and can be 
I'm sensing, but I'm pursuing it in a, in a fantasy land, on screen only. You know, it's not uh, whatever, four-dimensional, whatever. Problem. So, to come to the that stillness, but then to really get a handle on what, what that is, then we have to see it in relation to something. So, so in relation to the other side, to the supernatural, to that uh, ultimate reality that the infinite, let's say, if the inf- if the finite wants to know the infinite, how will it know? Any mathematicians here? How can the finite know the infinite? Can't, unless the infinite wants it to know. If the infinite, out of its infinite power, wants the finite to know, then it can know. So revelation. So while. The, our methodology, if you will, for retiring the force, false self should be such that it doesn't stop there. But in the context of retiring the false self, it attracts reality. It draws the attention, the sympathy of reality. Think of reality then as a, as a magnet, a positive magnet that's pushing and making everything happen from wherever the source, everything's coming out of. So how will we attract that to us? Not by pushing forward. Two positive poles of a magnet repel one another. And if one is really big and one is really small, (laughs) that one will really get repelled quite a distance. So this is not the approach. Therefore, in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, the soul has been depicted like a young girl, largely like a young girl in times gone by okay <laughs> in pre-modern times <laughs> uh, uh, or just make her young enough and it's okay you know <laughs> even in the modern times young boy can be the same too dependent like a child childlike and you know dad is very busy he's got so many things to do especially if he's an important person and so forth how will a child attract his attention by expressing his neediness and affection, naturally, he'll put down everything to answer her tears, the call of her heart for any simple thing. So to position ourselves something like this, this is bhakti, that our methodology for retiring the false self should be such that it doesn't end there, but in the context of retiring the false self, we draw the attention of the whole to ourselves. That's a huge uh, task, to get the attention of the center. How will we get the attention of the center? It might sound egotistical. I want the center to be have its attention on me, but I need some attention. <laughs> That's a fact. <laughs> I need some attention. That's attending to myself. Uh, hmm. So I had the whole, the whole center to be attracted to me so, you know, if you want to, let's say there's a wealthy, wealthy heiress and you want to attract her attention. So if you go to her place with a motive to, to steal some, put something in your pocket, you know, one of the antiques, when, as you walk out the door and she's capable of detecting your motive, sensitive to that, you're not going to get her attention. You're not going to get in the door. If you go in there with a motive to know her and and uh, serve her and figure out how she becomes so rich, 
so that you could take that and become rich yourself, it's not going to attract her very much either. If you go there just to serve her, then it is said uh, that if you love a person, then they'll tell you all the secrets. You understand? Love is the way. Love is the way. If you love someone, then they'll tell you all the secrets. So our approach has to be a loving approach, not just a mechanical approach, not just a thoughtful approach. We've spoken as logically as I can, forgive me for my limits there, about this thing, but uh, the underlying current of it that I want to come to is that the method of Sri Chaitanya foregoing and knowing, while it's logical in its foundation, just like in art there is math, in music inside it there is there is math, but it's kind of hidden. You know, people, somebody plays the music and you think, wow, he just got talent. You know, she's just got it. But there's math to that. <laughs> they figured it out. They did some studying and so, and so it looks like it just natural and flows and so forth. So some logic must be there, some knowledge must be there, some proper orientation. And then, out of that, the approach, the methodology. So, ours, the method of Sri Chaitanya, is a method of love. He says, Nadanam, Nadanam, Nasundurim, Kobitamba, Jagadishakamai, Mama, Janmani, Janmanishwari, Babatur Bhakti, Hoi, Tukitwari. At this stage in his teaching, he says, Nadanam, Nadanam, Nasundurim, Kobitamba, Mama, Janmani, Janmanishwari. He's speaking to Ishwar. It means the controller, the source of the world, the over-soul of the world, the universal intelligence, the cosmic uh, knowing, Paramatma. He says, why? That's what he's saying. I, fare, I bid you farewell. Because your world that you oversee is all about Dhanam, Janam, Sundarim, Kovi. It means desires, Desires for wealth, for relationship, for, um, for for knowledge, for its own sake, for a following. If you study carefully the words here, the whole gamut of desires, what, what the self is really interested in, in security, in knowing, in ananda, in joy, all such pursuits. He, he said, from a worldly perspective, there's an overlord who sees over all. There's a, there's a worldly intelligence, a universal intelligence that oversees all the. I'm bidding farewell. Nadanam, nadanam, nasundarim kovitam kamaye kam. The desire for the world and that conventional self. I'm bidding farewell to that and to you, who's overlord of that. Mama janmani janmani shore, bhavatad bhakti rahaituki he says Ishwara another time. Now he's talking on the other side. From Jagadishwar to Pranishwar. Pranishwar. Pranishwar means not the oversoul of the world, but Bhagwan, the Godhead, the Ishta, Ishta Devata, the Lord of my my love, my heart. Now, in all spiritual traditions there's some deity, some personality, some divine manifestation of the divine. The Buddha is this wisdom, Christ the sacrificing 
aspect, very attractive, powerful, and uh, compelling. And we can look across the board. So we come to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, Chaitanya Vaishnavism. And the deity of Sri Chaitanya is, is Krishna. So Radha Krishna, this duad. And, and, and then you study it and you see, well, now what aspect of the divinity is this about? Well, it's, it's very easy to say. This is about the heart. This is about the romantic life of the Absolute. How extraordinary that might be. You think about it. Reality has a life of its own. <laughs> and it's romantic. And we could say, ultimately romantic. We could reason like that, and as much as our microcosmic life is ultimately romantic, we kind of hope. <laughs> that would be the best thing, <laughs> we think. We cannot rest until we find love, and then we find love, we cannot. We have to move again in another way. But that movement is up and down as it is. We don't want to get off the ride. So that, that the, the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he conceived that, that real, ultimate reality has a romantic life, has an aspect to itself, a heart to itself. There's other aspects of itself that manifest in the world in other traditions that are all part of the kind of this perennialist uh, uh, genre of thinkers, feelers, experiencers, realizers, mystics, and, and so many things they tell us, like what we've been speaking about tonight in so many different ways. But because the deity of Sri Chaitanya is Krishna, and, it, and he represents the heart, the romantic life of the Absolute, <coughs> so it goes then, we reach the door of transcendence, the house of transcendence, and it goes in this door. It goes in the back door and up to the penthouse suite there, something like that. The private life of the Absolute. This is the, the glimpse that Sri Chaitanya Dev wants to give to the, to the world, to open the door to that. This is a, we're getting kind of higher theologically here, so a little harder to follow and, and to talk about also. My point is this, and I shouldn't continue too much longer, maybe I should leave it with this. As I said earlier, our path for dismantling this conventional sense of self, this imaginary appearance of self that's so troublesome to us, should be such that it doesn't rest there, but it, it, it retires that self in the context of entering into the romantic life of the Absolute, entering into the heart of divinity, a very charming kind of idea. You've seen perhaps the artwork and heard, listened to the poetry and the song that describes this heart of divinity. As a young boy, complexion of the color of the rain cloud, full of rain, ready to just pour the life of, of rain onto the parched crops in the analogy that, uh, in the metaphor that we are, hmm? desert-like existence of samsara to to give uh, some relief to that hmm? sham sham is a color it's uh, in in indian aesthetics every color every emotion has a color so sham is the color for romantic life for love though hmm? so the mystics like sri Chaitanya, they, they understood that his pranishwar lord of his life moving away from the conventional self of the world it's made of desires He's moving away from that and dismantling that and being freed from that. Nature is letting him go. He's trying to participate in the heart 
of ultimate reality. And nature is just going, go for it. <laughs> go, wow, that's an idea. Go for it. This is how nature responds. I mean, how different of, of an approach and how different of a response than we get from, if we go all the way back to what we were talking about earlier, the scientific approach, the human approach to conquer nature and get her into the test tube and, and so forth and dominate, and that was a folly. But this is by this participatory approach, and, it, and it's a very high ideal one. You think, I want to enter into, into the love life of the absolute. I want to be a player there in the drama. If the absolute has anything to do, anything to do it must be play. Right? Krishna is depicted how? The mystics depict the absolute Krishna. Krishna means, oh, it means irresistible. That's what it means. All attractive, irresistible. And you would think, well, the source of everything must be depicted as very powerful. But he's just playing. <laughs> In fact, sometimes he's losing. <laughs> sometimes he's wrestling with his friends, and sometimes they're winning. Sometimes Radha won't let him in the door. <laughs> so it's a problem. <laughs> but no, because why? Because to play means to have power. If you work, then you can play. You have to have some money, save some money in the bank, that's power. Then you can take a vacation, come visit Swami, and <laughs> that kind of thing. So you have to have power to play. So who is only playing he must be all-powerful. He had nothing to do. So they said the absolute must ultimately be like this. There may be different manifestations of ultimate reality. They have some task to perform in relation to us and the world and so forth. But ultimately... When it's by itself, unto itself, naked, as it sees itself, reality, through its own lens, just playing, that's all. Nothing to do. But the play, the, na the, the nature of the play is so, pro it has such so profound for us. Such meaning comes from that. We study that. So this is the audacity of Sri Chaitanya. His Pranishwar. He envisioned Nanda Tanuja. He says, I Nanda Tanuja. I want to live in the house of Nanda. It means I want to marry Krishna. <laughs> I want to live in his father's house, as it was but be the custom. I Nanda Tanuja. This is coming into, into view now in his heart. The Pranishwar, the, the Jagadishwar is gone. The world is gone. The conventional self is gone. Now, this Nanda, uh, Nanda Tanuja means. It means Krishna. It's a charming name for Krishna, entering into his heart. So nature, as far as rising above nature, which as I said, is we have intuitive sense as humans that this is possible. Okay? Just going, take it, go for it. Just bowing down to, to, it, to such an idea. The idea, what do you come up with? People are trying to conquer me in so many ways. This is incredible. You want to go to this. You want to go to my source and in such, with such intimacy in mind, it's a high ideal, of course, and, but what kind of purity there must be? What type of, if I was saying, if the two magnets are to be attracted, one, can, both cannot be positive. This one, Krishna, is big positive, Purush. We cannot have Purushabhav <laughs> and approach him. He, has, he is the personification of Purushabhav, the pusher, the sustainer. But Prakriti, Prakriti means like, it's kind of, oh, feminine, kind of. So, 
you know, women have a way of getting men to do what they want. <laughs> of being being in charge. It's quite charming, actually. Uh, once I was sitting with my Gurdjieff in uh, Manhattan. He had a building in Manhattan. The students had gone for him and it was on the 11th floor. And it was a big thing for him because he started by living in homeless in the Bowery in, in, in New York City, coming from India in a cold winter. He never experienced that. So there he was sitting in the 11th story and I was... a it was 1975. I had become a renunciate of sannyasin just earlier that year. So we were sitting together and he said to me, Tell me, have you seen the New York women? And I'm thinking, now what does he want me to say? Have <laughs> 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 I seen the New York women? <laughs> so I didn't know what to say. And, um, and he said, They're so beautiful. Hmm? And he said, and he kept talking, he said, and this building and that building, all going up by their power. All these men working so hard, and all these buildings are going... He said, this is the power of Vishnu Maya. He said, the guys, that Shakti, so powerful, driving the whole thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, the idea is something like this, that, that our conventional sense of self has, been, has arrived at by pushing so to speak, in kind of a manly, you know, controlling, you know, that uh, male ego type of, I'm mean, just using psychological terms, it doesn't entirely apply, but that kind of approach. And the spirituality, you have to take a feminine approach. So the, like the negative magnet attracts the positive, even a tiny negative one, drawn into the, into the center. So with humility and... Uh, and prayerfulness and, 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 and the willingness to admit our necessity we need yes I'm needy the fellow told me well you believe in God because you, you're needy I said yeah that's the difference between you and me I know that I'm needy and you're needy and you don't know that you're needy that's the difference you want to talk about it <laughs> what it means to be needy and what it means to be full so this kind of idea of futures, and it's very extraordinary, actually, as I say. It very quickly retires the conventional self by way of attracting the whole. And it's almost like, you want to know that about me? This is Chaitanya Vaishnavism. Reality says, you want to know me on, as I know myself? When I want to be myself? Think of existence as a, as a person that we're like a, an energy of. Does all kinds of things, but has his own time off, too when he just wants to kick back. Swayam Bhagavan means when he wants to be himself, his self, his own self. Very relaxed environment. Put the godhood down. It's just a burden. Take off the crown. Hmm? Something like that. Adorned as he is, Krishna depicted with peacock. That is his crown. Peacock's feather. So when nature hears from us, this is your interest. This ideal is so high. I'll have to pay respect just to somebody who has an ideal like that, even if they haven't accomplished it. Because after all, we should not judge a person by their past, but neither only by their present, but by their future, which is found in their ideal. Because their ideal, they will become. This is the heart, you should know this, of sadhana, of real sadhana, your ideal. That is the heart however incapable you are 
of arriving there, arising to the occasion, maintain that ideal. That ideal of Sri Chaitanya is so attractive to the Absolute. You want that? This is your idea? Goodness. Really? <laughs> On those terms? If you could think of it, you might go for it. <laughs> Nobody thinks like that. Nobody's so interested in me, in the Absolute. Nobody ever wants something from me, whether it be something material or eternal life, emancipation, mukti, siddhis. Everybody wants something from me. And all you want is just to hang out with me? That's it? To serve me? To love me? Come. Come in. And nature? So go. Go. She's giving release. And we're coming in the embrace of the supernatural. This is the idea of Sri Chaitanya. This is a Gaudi of Vaishnavism within perennialism. This is all I have to say tonight. Thank you. But if there are any questions, I'll try to answer them. So, a problem may exist where a majority of people in the world may, although they may be uh, conventionally or mathematically conditioned, as you as you may put it, uh, but somehow they, uh, with the mind, they ration or they crowd the intelligence and ration to themselves that they are transrational or that they are beyond, above the mathematical conditioning. And uh, so in that sense, what is the gauge that one can use in self-analyzing uh, themselves between being on the rational or transrational platform? Mm-hmm. Um, so what you mean is that, I think, is that someone may pursue a spiritual path and, and think that they're further along than they are. Correct. Like, for instance, right. you may, uh, by intellectual engage with the, with the, to mm-hmm. quantify the, uh, the number of prescribed uh, rounds or whatever. The, you know, Let me say this. Sure. Problems will happen like this. That is inevitable. Good things will always be abused. That is inevitable. I cannot give you a formula whereby this will never happen, first oh, of sure, all. Sure. Right? That yeah, is the first point. <laughs> it will happen somewhere to somebody, and maybe to you on some level, and maybe it happens to all of us on some level. Uh, we already think we're something. That's the problem. <laughs> so, to, to move away from that, then in the context of pursuing spiritual life, that may come in its own way and raise its ugly face ahead, and, uh, and we may think we're further along than not. Um, and so, um, how to, you want to know how to protect oneself, or how can one protect oneself? How does one gauge uh, when they're truly, what platform they're truly on? Yeah, well, there are some good, helpful books in that regard, that very thoughtfully delineate the, the stages of bhakti. Like uh, in, like in Shikshastakam commentary, we've shown, following the lead of Bhakti Vinotakur, all the prayers of Shikshastakam, how they correspond with the different stages of bhakti, and a very healthy and extended explanation of those different stages. So it's like, if you go into the mall, right, and you look at the map, you want to go to such and such store, 
and it says you are here and you have to go there. So a map that will be helpful, right? So a saintly person helps to provide such a map. We should be acquainted with that. That's one thing. Other than that, I think really the answer to your question is that Krishna says in the Gita, Truth attracts truth. Sincerity is is what is what spiritual life is at the heart. You can't stop somebody from being insincere. It's hard. You could try to make force them to be sincere by making them giving them so much knowledge that they'll feel so hypocritical if they if they act otherwise. You know, <laughs> it's. A, <laughs> Uh, but you know you, you can't ensure that somebody's not going to be insincere that you're not. But to have a healthy caution, concern about that is evidence of sincerity in and of itself. So self-examination is part of bhakti. You have to uh, uh, be introspective and um, and keep good company. If you want to grow, then you have to be in the company of people who are more developed than you. But when you want to keep the company only of the lower sector, there may not be much opportunity for growth. Therefore, we find even the greatest teachers seeking good company, always. Um, let's take Vaishnavism, Gaudiya Vaishnavism. How will you measure uh, the success of a Vaishnava? There may be a, a, an external measurement. External measurement may be what? That he or she convinces others to take up the path. Wow, some power must he must know. He's convinced me and the others. Has a lot of theoretical knowledge. Let's say um, detachment even. Shows a degree of detachment, renunciation. That's extraordinary. So I think he must know something. It's this guy's like only eats Tulsi leaves on Fridays or on codices. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so there's some you know truth to that. If, if you have the power to bring others within the fold, then there's reason to think. Well, he or she must know something, and corresponding with such knowledge, if it's genuine, the corollary of that should be detachment. But these are external measurements. They're not without value, but there can be some deception also. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful philosophy, so if you can commit it to memory and you're a little creative, make a creative presentation, it can inspire others and so forth. And, you know, as long as you have your own room, you can be detached everywhere else, you know, in your own room then. <laughs> It all comes out, right? So, and that will come out everywhere, everywhere else as well in due course. But, but then what is the other form of measurement? Let's look for an internal form of measurement, so to speak, that's nonetheless visible. And that is this, that how he or she, that Vaishnav, appears in relation to those more advanced. There didn't be no cheating there. Hmm? You understand? Because those who are more advanced, they will detect that. You cannot fake, oh yes, Gurudev or the senior Vaishnavas, I have such respect for them. And, and it would speak, if you can't find any senior ones, then you've really shown yourself to be suspect. You understand? Mm-hmm. Now, how we advance, how we associate with advanced Vaishnavas, who will be advanced for one, more than one another, that's just 
somewhat uh, subjective also. How one can take advantage of higher association. Some may be able to take advantage in more invisible ways than others, but they'll always speak on this principle. Some may be able to draw help from the, from the invisible, from the aprakrit, from the aprakat, unmanifest sadhus, and from the text they've left behind. But there'll be some evidence of that, how they can take creatively from there and find meaning that you couldn't see. But even such persons then will always extol the virtues of sadhusanga, advanced association, and seek it whenever possible. They maybe have a, like our Gurudev had a, my Gurudev had a big mission, Pretty was busy and so forth, and, but, but repeatedly he, 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 he like hammered this point into us. It was a point that he adhered to real life. For example, he, he considered Pujapachita Maharaj as my Sikhsha Guru, so, so much you will also benefit from, from his association, he told us. He used to write Sridhar Maharaj from America, what will I do? Shall I die here? I'm, my heart is bad, or shall I return to Vrindavan? And I have no one to get advice from. This is not his, his shortcoming, this is greatness. Do you understand? So, what greatness? There's no greater measure of his spiritual standing than that. And he was such a big campaign. Who will he have to listen to? He didn't think, who will I have to listen to? I have to find somebody to listen to. Is there anybody I can listen to? This is my only shortcoming. I have no one to ask. This is the spirit. So when we... It'd be hard to cheat on that side. Hmm? So how the Vaishnav situates himself or herself in relation to the senior Vaishnav, that will be telling. that helpful? Yeah. What else? Another question? Yes, sir. How much of a concern should it be for someone who knows that they're um, less advanced, feeling like maybe they're doing a disservice to the more advanced devotees by associating with them? No, don't worry about that. No. <laughs> How much? Zero. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> if you're bothering, they'll tell you. You're bothering, <laughs> you're bothering me now. <laughs> okay. With no malice. Something like so try to see a good company. You know, like I have my own experience, right? I have my Gurudev and, and uh, in his presence then. Um, they used to have a policy. It was a pretty big mission at the time. And, they used to have a policy. He used to go on a, a walk every morning. And wherever he was, he would go on a, more, on a walk. And, and, um, and then the, the leading fellows, as they saw themselves, and as they were pragmatic, practically too, uh, administrators and so forth, they would to make an announcement. Only, nobody should go on the walk with Prabhupada, only, you know, this certain people, the, the governing body commission, and sannyasis, and, you know, don't trouble him, don't bother him. And I always broke the rule and went anyway. That was my habit. And Prabhupada always turned to me and talked to me, so, he would say. I was always in the field talking to people, common people and so forth. He would say, so what are they saying? He would ask me and I would tell, they're saying this, this is their argument. Then he would give me an argument and so forth. And he'd always give me attention and it was kindness. So I think we talked for a while and you have more other things to do too. You have your spiritual practice to do, so... Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.